0: which is um, page 148 in the Church Bibles. So it's Haggai chapter 2. I'll give you a while to find it, because it's quite difficult to find. Um, 948, chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the law came through the prophet Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now he... be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people on the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations, and the desires of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is the word of the Lord Almighty, he says. Ask the priest what the law says. If the person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiles by contact with the dead body, touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, says the priest, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this de- from this day, on And consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone, came to he- when anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, and yet you do not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. This is yet any seed left in the barn. Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Jatil, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ali, and w- well done with those names. And with the, uh, the tendency these days for people to name their children after Old Testament characters, certainly in this church, um, there are a few suggestions there for you. Anyway, before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about who Haggai was. It's a very short book, and it's written a very long time ago. And yet we thank you that your word still speaks today. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up these verses to our hearts. And that just as those Israelites were so encouraged two and a half thousand years ago, so we would be encouraged and better equipped to live for you, Tonight, And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now on the 29th of October 1941, Winston Churchill went back to his old school at Harrow, which is a suburb of northwest London. And he was wanting to go and join in with a singing of school songs, a very popular custom at the school. Now, 1941, pretty dark days in this country, two years into the war with no sign of an end, and Churchill found that singing really lifted his heart, especially when singing with 900 male voices. It is a pretty cheering sound. And at the end, he stood up to address the school, and in the middle of a short speech which was less than five minutes long, he said these would have become quite famous words. Never give in, never give in, never, never, never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. The standing ovation was loud and long. The temptation to give in is strong, I think, in most of us, especially when times are hard, especially when perhaps we see little signs of progress. And this is true in the Christian life as much as it is in any other area of life. And here is the challenge of Haggai chapter 2, to keep going, never to give in. Now, let's just get up to speed with the story so far, just in case you weren't here last week. It's 520 BC, and Israel, having been in exile in Babylon for 50 years, has now been back in Jerusalem for the last 18 years. Darius, also known as Cyrus, was king of Babylon, and he'd allowed them to go back to Jerusalem specifically to rebuild their temple. He was a bit of a syncretist, Darius, and he sort of basically said, off you go and say a prayer for me, kind of hedging his bets. However, instead of building the temple, the Lord's house, God's people built flashy homes for themselves. If you just look at chapter 1, verse 4, they were building panelled houses, whilst this house, the temple, remained a ruin. And last week, John made the point that the temple is not so much a a building as a representation of God's presence and his purpose. By not rebuilding the temple, God's people are saying we're more interested in our own ordinary pursuits than we are in the interests of God. They focused on their own material needs rather than on the need to have God dwelling with them. And the temple is much more than simply a building project. It's a sign that the people are, or in this case are not, dedicated to God. And last week, we also noted that in the New Testament, the temple is not that massive building in Jerusalem, but the temple is Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 2, As you'll see coming up on the screen, Jesus refers to himself as the temple, the place where God dwells, which would be destroyed and raised three days later. In the New Testament, the Christian is also referred to as a temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit who is in you, In other words, the Christian is the place where God dwells today. So by extension, not just the individual Christian, but the church, that is, not the building, but the people, the church is the temple also. So Peter says in his epistle, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house or temple. So the challenge of Haggai chapter one last week is to seek first God's glory or to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. God's glory should be the highest concern of his people back in the 29th of August, 520 B.C. Haggai is quite precise here with his dating and God's glory should be the highest concern of his people on the 19th of April. 2015 as well so we now come to haggai chapter 2 and it's 6 weeks later it's the 17th of october 520 bc and although god's people responded positively and obeyed god and set to work on rebuilding the temple reality is now kicking in and the word of the lord comes 3 times in this chapter we have 3 Separate prophecies. Three encouragements to keep us going. And here's the first. Never give in, even when you don't think you've got God with you. Never give in, even when you don't think you've got God with you. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, the first prophecy. God's people are no longer disobedient, but they are discouraged. Look at verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? You see, there were no doubt a few old timers still kicking around. This is now 68 years after the Israelites had been booted out and taken to exile in Babylon. You can imagine the, the old brigade 68 years on, they could just about remember the good old days, the glory years, with the wonderful temple with its gold walls. And they look at this building project that's going on six weeks in. Well, it's never going to be like the old temple, is it? This looks rather like a budget Barrett home, kitted out from Ikea. It all looks rather pathetic. Pathetic. And people grew discouraged. Doesn't it seem to you like nothing? And we too can look at the church today and be discouraged. Do you remember those years in the 1930s when people used to queue round Chester Square to be in church on time to get a seat? In the days when the church could seat 1,700 people. Those were the days. Do you remember that faithful Sunday school teacher? There's a table to her in the the foyer as you come in. 57 years she gave to teaching children week by week, Sunday by Sunday. We don't have that sort of person in the church these days, do we? Or I just have to look in the mirror to feel discouraged. Am I really a Christian? Where's that passion I had when I was a young Christian? Why don't I have more of a desire to see the hundreds of thousands of people living in Westminster who aren't going to be in any church today come to Christ? And God says to us now, as he says to his people, then keep going. Look at chapter two, verse four. Be strong. Be strong. And a third time, in case you missed the first two, be strong and work. Crack on. Never give in. But unlike Churchill, he doesn't just say, you know, man up, chin up, never give up. Did you notice the glut of promises that God makes in verses 4 to 9? Promises for the present and promises for the future. For the present, in verse 4, he says, I am with you. Verse 5, I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Verse 5 again, my spirit remains with you. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God rescued them and God said to them, then I am with you. When Jesus rescued us from the slavery of sin, dying for us on the cross, he was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus's spirit remains with us Now. As with his people then, I am with you. It's interesting that Matthew's gospel is bookended in chapter 1 with the promise to Joseph and Mary of the coming of their son who will be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. And the very last verse of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples and I am with you always to the end of the age. Moses is God, Haggai is God, he's our God too, because God doesn't change. I am with you. What a wonderful promise as we seek to live for Christ at work tomorrow. I am with you as we ask a friend if they be interested in reading the Bible with us one-to-one. I am with you as you prepare to give a short talk to the youth group. John's finally got you and you've run out of excuses. I am with you as you start to teach the children in the Sunday school. I am with you. So, verse 5, do not fear. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. And then, verses 6 to 9, we have promises for the future. Verse 6, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 7, I will shake all nations. I will fill this house with glory. Verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former. Now we read in Exodus chapter 19 that when God rescued his people in Egypt, he shook the earth. And he says here he's going to do it again in a little while. So it's even closer now than it was then. And we are to live in eager expectation of Jesus coming back soon. Now, verse 6 is the one verse in Haggai that's actually quoted in the New Testament. It's Hebrews chapter 12. You might just like to look at it. Hebrews chapter 12, it's on page 1211. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse twenty-six, page twelve eleven. At that vo- at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Here's the quote: "Once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens." The words "once more" indicate the removing of, of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken. May remain. Now, here's a reminder that God is going to come to judge. He's going to shake the earth, but he's also going to come to save. And the writer to the Hebrews uses this verse as a motivation to keep going, never to give in. We're about to start a series in, in Hebrews. And it's a wonderful... You, he can't go on for very long without some little exhortation to keep going in, in Hebrews. And... Here he's, uh, he's using it as an exhortation to keep going in chapter 13, verse 1, to keep on loving each other, never to give in loving. Uh, verse 2, never to forget to enter- entertain strangers. Don't give up doing that. Don't give up, verse 3, visiting prisoners. Don't give in to sexual impurity, verse 4. Keep your lives free from love of money, verse 5, and so on. These are promises for the future. But the exhortation is never give in, even when you don't think that you've got God with you. That's the first encouragement. Second encouragement from the second prophecy, prophecy, we're back in Haggai chapter 2, comes from verses 10 to 19. Never give in, even when you don't think you need God with you. Never give in even when you don't think you need God with you. And here in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, God is speaking through Haggai to the overconfident who are trusting in themselves rather than God. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied. It becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. The question posed here is, is holiness contagious? And the answer is no. Is uncleanness contagious? And the answer is, yes. Let's say you're not feeling 100% and you go to the doctor on a foggy February evening. And it's one of those evenings where the waiting room is heaving with people and they're all coughing, that horrible kind of cough. And you think, I was probably better off staying at home. Is that waiting room the place you go if you want to shake off a cold? No. Is uncleanness contagious? Answer, yes. It's now the 17th of December, 520 BC, so two months months later from the first prophecy. And so the rebuilding is now three and a half months in. The Israelites might be tempted to pat themselves on their back. Well done us, we're doing quite a good job here. We've obeyed the Lord and we're getting on with the task. Now, when people start patting themselves on the back, that's when they need a constant reminder that sin matters and that we constantly need God's grace and forgiveness. 2,500 years on, we're still prone to make the same sort of mistakes. The first mistake is to think that actually my sin's not that serious. I mean, there are a lot of people a lot worse than me. And the second mistake is to think that my external religious observance will get me right with God. Many people think, and I think even Christians can lapse into this kind of thinking, I must be all right with God because I was in church on Sunday. I must be all right with God because I've been on the Alpha course or I've, I've joined a home group. I must be all right with God because I'm giving regularly to the church, either my money or my time, my talents. I must be all right with God because I help with a variety of good causes. Basically, I must be all right with God because I'm a pretty good bloke. Now, all these things I've mentioned are great things to do. Of course, we want to worship and we want to give and we want to serve and all that. But in themselves, these things don't transmit holiness to those who perform them. And to drive the point home in verses 15 to 19, Haggai is basically saying the land has been defiled because the people are defiled. We can so easily try to fool ourselves, even and perhaps especially if we've been Christians for some time. We try to fool ourselves that because I hang out with Christians and because I do good deeds and because I'm basically a nice bloke for about 80% of the time, all is well between me and God. And Haggai is saying holiness is not contagious. That's not how it works. We need to be right with God. And of course, as Christians looking after Jesus back on this passage, We need to keep looking to Jesus, who took our sin. Trusting in my own deeds will get me nowhere. Before the rebuilding of the temple, the Israelites had been unsuccessful because they were not looking to God. That's why the land was infertile. That's why they didn't uh, harvest as much as they'd hoped, in verses uh, 16 and 17. But now they're trusting God. Now they're rebuilding the temple. Now they're obeying Him. God says, verse 19, from that day on, I will bless you. In other words, from the moment you start trusting God, the moment you start seeking His kingdom first and obeying Him, from that day, we will know God's covenant blessing. So, what keeps us going? Trusting in our own achievements or seeking God's grace and trusting his promises? Well, what a great promise verse 19 is. From that day on, from the moment we rely on God's grace, from that day on, I will bless you. So never give in, even when you don't think you need God with you. Third encouragement from the third prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. Never give in, even when you think that having God with you isn't enough. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Never give in, even when you think that having God with you isn't enough. Zerubbabel, now that's a great name for a son, isn't it? Zerubbabel was governor of Judah. He'd been placed in this role by the Babylonians. So although he was uh, Jewish, he was actually uh, sort of put there by the former occupying power. It also happens that uh, Zerubbabel was in the line of King David, the great king of Israel. In fact, Zerubbabel Zerubbabel makes one appearance – in the New Testament, and that is in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy that shows the line right through to Jesus. So Zerubbabel was one of Jesus' forefathers. And in this last prophecy here in Haggai, God gives him both a word of reassurance and a word of hope. Again, here's a prophecy packed with promises. So first, the word of reassurance in verse 22 God says, I will overturn, I will shatter, I will overthrow. These heathen nations that seem so strong, so invincible, are actually in the hand of God. God is in control of them all. And Zerubbabel need have no fear of these superpowers, God had chosen him as his servant, verse 23, to lead his people. So you may not look much, Zerubbabel, but the royal line is back. And of course, as Christians living after Jesus, we look back at this and we see that this is a a foretaste of what is to come. Zerubbabel is a son or a descendant of the great king, David. And of course, Jesus, 10 generations on from Zerubbabel, is great David's greater son. This reassurance is that God is in control. The unlikely king rules. And one day, an even more unlikely-looking king. A king who is known as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The king who is despised and rejected by men. One day, another king would overthrow and shatter all the forces of evil in his death on the cross. There's a reassurance there. God is in control even in a rather unlikely situation. And then there's a word of hope. Zerubbabel was faced with a challenging task. He was leading a disheartened people. He was surrounded by powerful enemies. And God says to him, verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring." For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. There are three great promises of hope here in this verse. First, that he is God's servant. Zerubbabel is a little picture of, of Jesus, supremely God's chosen servant. And we read all about him in Isaiah as God's servant. The rubble is also God's signet ring. The signet ring is a sign that you're part of the family. And more than that, that where the, king, where the signet ring seals something, it comes with all the authority of the, uh, the owner of the ring. In this case, God's signet ring. So he has all God's authority. And thirdly, he is chosen by God. I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. Two and a half thousand years have come and gone. The Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, is long since gone. Other empires have come and gone. But one empire remains, growing stronger day by day. As sinners willingly submit to the authority of God's chosen servant, Jesus. One day soon, heaven and earth will be shaken for a final time, and only God's kingdom will remain. We can be tempted to be disheartened. We can think, it's very easy to think, if you, especially if you, watch the television or read the papers, that the Christian religion, especially in this country, is on the wane. We can be tempted to think that our church isn't very impressive. We can think other religions are on the rise. We can be tempted to think that God is not there at all. But this third encouragement of Haggai is never given even when you think having God with you isn't enough. He's more than enough. Never give in. Never, never, never. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. The book of Haggai looks like an ancient book all about rebuilding a ruined temple and a rather half-baked rebuild at that. But really, it's about lining up with God and his purposes. It's about putting God's priorities first. And it's about enjoying his blessings as we obey him. I don't know if you noticed, as as the passage was read this evening, how often the name for God is described, the Lord Almighty. I think 15 times in two short chapters, the Lord Almighty, sometimes translated the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. We're surrounded by all sorts of armies, real and imaginary and metaphorical. We're up against it, but we've got the Lord Almighty whose opening act in chapter 1, verse 1, is to speak, and whose closing act is to in chapter 2, verse 23, is to speak. The Lord Almighty speaks. The Lord Almighty rules. He will triumph. Let's pray.